they can be the the prophet or the one who is off spreading the word. That can be more powerful than an administrator in trying to encourage faculty to do things. And I have had a lot of, this is a little bit off the digital transformation topic, but maybe not because it's a really cool culture lever. But community is a practice where you're really turning the power over to those in the community to be the ones who are sharing what they're learning, sharing their questions, sharing their ideas with peers and colleagues. I think that, that I've had great success with those. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brad Gardner. Hi, Brad. Hi, Tiffany. Now, I hope that you all listened in last week with part one with Kathy Pelletier. If you didn't get a chance to catch that episode, go ahead and listen in and then join us. This is part two with Kathy. It's great to have you back. It's so great to be here again. Thank you. All right, we're jumping right back in. You mentioned the statistic of less than 50% of Americans believing in the value of higher education. And yet we're seeing all kinds of alternative forms of credentials and training popping up here and there, which can be scary for folks who believe in the value of higher education. So how can educators and administrators in higher education not simply fear or even just criticize, I suppose, the other forms of credentialing and actually partner with or find their own creative ways to offer solutions in the market as it exists today? Well, you kind of took the words right out of my mouth because I think, you know, when we think about the alternative credential market, which is growing, I think in the last year or so, it's grown at least 15 or more percent and is projected to grow even more. So it, while it, it isn't poised to kind of take over higher education anytime soon, it, it's definitely a, a, has some momentum. But I do think, you know, you said partnering, the words that I would use are partnering and competing with. And so yeah. oftentimes it, it's also important to step back and recognize that you're actually comparing apples to oranges because the alternative credentials offered by companies, whether it's something like a MOOC at Coursera or a boot camp mm-hmm. that offers very specific technology-oriented skills, that's really not what higher education does. So I think coming back to our roots and, rec- well, what is the value proposition of a degree and how does that differ and how can we just kind of coexist in a space where there are alternative providers that serves a purpose, but also really learn from them too. And, and thinking about how can higher education also participate in this upskilling and reskilling that's happening through alternative credentials. So I have a couple examples off the top of my head, I think that I'd love to share about how institutions are responding um, great. differently. Sure. Um, so at Educause, where I work, we have one of our research projects is called the Horizon Report, and it's a report that uses foresight methodology and an expert panel to really identify the trends and technologies and practices that are going to be likely to be most impactful on higher education, teaching and learning. And we have a few other flavors of the Horizon Report, but I'm most familiar with the teaching and learning report in the next 10 years. So it's looking at a 10-year time horizon. And in the last, I want to say three or four years, micro-credentials has risen to the top. So we have our panel 
they nominate all sorts of trends and technologies and practices, and we have lists and lists of these, and then ultimately they vote to identify the top handful of, of these. And micro-credentials has made it to the top the last several years. And another thing that we do as a part of this report that's actually one of the most fun parts of my job is we invite institutions to share projects as exemplars of these technologies and practice. So, so tell us about your micro-credentials program. And so we get hundreds of these entries and unfortunately we can only publish a handful, but so I get to read through them all and, and learn about well, what people are doing across higher ed. And so all that is to say, it's really cool to see the range of what institutions are doing because there are some that get really specific and offer a credential that looks a lot more like what a boot camp might look like. And actually, one example that I just came across was in the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. And they're one of 18 Wisconsin public and private colleges and universities. And they're partnering with what's called MKE Tech. Hub Coalition, which is a nonprofit, like boot camp type of organization, and they are community education training organization. And they created a 10 week summer boot camp on the topic of AI and the foundations of data and are offering that to students in the Milwaukee area. So that example is of an institution with a very focused, you know, the AI and foundations of data, but partnering across many institutions and a community education or workforce training provider. There's another example, which is a little bit different, which is in Minnesota where I live. And it's a partnership between, this is actually the for-profit example at the Minnesota State Colleges and Universities or MinSKU. They have IT Center of Excellence and that provides training and services and resources related to technology for Minnesota State students. and. And it's funded by the state of Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development. So kind of a state-oriented workforce development program. And they are partnering with Prime Academy. Again, a pretty specific focus. And this one provides kind of basic technology training that will get to kind of a Microsoft certification and career navigation for BIPOC students. And those examples are that kind of like, let's figure this out with other providers that are already doing this upskilling and reskilling. There's a couple examples of really mature programs that have been around for many years. I mean, it, it's really interesting how long of a tail, and which is also part of the story about micro-credentialing, I think, is that it takes a long time to develop a mature micro-credential program if you want it to be more than just a boot camp or more than just a small certificate because of the technology involved, the registrar implications. If you're going to have an extended transcript, how are you going to do that? How are you going to look at your curriculum and actually bundle it differently or stack it differently? So it's not a small feat, but I think one of the shining stars is the SUNY system. And as of this, I just checked this morning and they have of like 500 micro-credentials across 60 discipline areas. And those credentials are offered to students, but also community members. So people in the community who are not going to school through the SUNY system um, can take this. So it's exciting to see how much activity there is on this front of micro-credentials. And then that doesn't even go into the kind of higher education workforce development of how can we upskill our staff and our faculty. So that's a whole other conversation. But I do think that to me, this is a success story that we have a lot of momentum. Institutions are 
putting one foot in front of the other and making the kind of incremental individual changes to their technology and their process and their culture to kind of equip them to be offering micro-credentials at, at whatever uh, level they want. But I do think that we are hearing more and more that, you know, it's a both and. It isn't just transferable skills or our liberal education, which is certainly of a tremendous value. And it isn't just technical skills or workforce skills that we really need to find a way to do both together. And like we were saying earlier, you know, be true to who you are in your mission. So just because somebody's doing a fancy micro-credential program over there, don't think that you have to do it on your campus without really evaluating how it fits with your your mission and your strategic priorities and that kind of thing. One of the things I heard from the two early examples that you provided, and not that the institutions aren't seeking to be global and open and accessible, were some pretty localized examples, which kind of goes back to that one foot in front of the other, could be as simple, in air quotes again, as figuring out who needs what and how can you partner together? So what are the partnering organizations that you're aware of that could use what you have to offer as a higher education institution and what you have to offer, bringing them together and serving a very specific population? For sure. Similarly, we've heard some success stories with micro-credentials that are also uh, at least begin localized just like that. In fact, Brad's brought a few of them to IWU. So Oh, that's fantastic. He wouldn't say that, but I will. (laughs) I I could talk micro-credentials all day. And part of that is because I, at my heart, am a curriculum and assessment nerd. And I believe that any reason to look at your curriculum and make sure it's up to date and it's relevant and you're teaching in the most effective ways and assessing in the most effective ways, that that's a good thing. And so, but obviously there's impact to students too, but yeah, it's, it's really exciting. And I think, you know, the very localized micro-credentials often, I think our community and technical colleges were a big pioneer in this because of their close connection to community and, and local industry and, and really being, having already long-standing partnerships with local businesses that can tell them directly, these are the skills that we need to hire the people that are coming out of your program. So that's, that's a really great example. So when you think about these innovations, like micro-credentials or other things, what are some of the needs that faculty have? How can we bring them along to accept and embrace and want to do these innovative things? That's a really a deceptively complex question because, as I'm sure you know, faculty are not monolithic and True. And oftentimes faculty, I think, are positioned as a barrier or the bad guys when it comes to innovation. And, and that really isn't the case. So I think just recognizing the various you know, profiles of faculty that you might be working with and knowing that if you have a faculty who has been doing innovative things, either with technology, with pedagogy and other ways, you just get out of their way and give them opportunities to share with their colleagues and really make them want to do more of that innovation through whether it's, you know, recognition through awards or extra prep time and money or, you know, other ways that we can really reinforce that kind of innate and skillful innovation that many faculty are already doing. And, and then I think we've got another batch of faculty who are those who might 
be kind of chugging along. They're willing to try technology. They might try a few tweaks to their clasp and they think they're fine and they probably are not hurting anyone, but they don't recognize the opportunity in front of them. And then of course we do have the faculty who are really not interested (laughs) in doing anything differently and, and just recognizing that. But I think regardless of the profile, there's just a few things that I actually am gonna signal a forthcoming article coming out in the Educause Review magazine in the next month or so by Dr. Tolu Noah, who's a faculty development professional. She talks about, I'm going to crib just a few things. Her article is going to talk about a lot more, but the things that I think are most important to talk about uh, right now, just off the top of my head, are relevance. And, you know, so faculty tend again, depending on who they are and their perspective experience, they might be more hooked by pedagogy than technology. So lead with pedagogy. Like what will you be able to do in your class? Just it happens that we're using technology to do it. So it's a way to kind of hook them. Another thing with relevance is actually, and this is kind of coupling with the idea of active learning, which, you know, really using good learning principles and teaching principles for the the faculty development is a best practice, but giving them activities that they can apply directly to their class either right now or in the next semester. So it's not this extra stuff because oftentimes one of the biggest issues for faculty is just the lack of time to engage in, in additional faculty development or other exploration or training. So relevance is a big one. Another big one is keeping it simple. Sometimes we want to teach all the things in in the moment. And even I find myself in this conversation wanting to tell you about all the things that I'm really excited (laughs) about talking about and probably need to pull back a little bit, but really creating space for dialogue and for testing and, you know, asking questions and and really simplifying instead of packing too much into one session. The other thing is just recognizing the humanness of each other. And that is both recognizing the expertise that faculty bring, but also that they might be afraid. And, And so creating an environment where mutual trust can be generated and faculty are willing to be vulnerable and and ask questions and tell you what they need because as adults, they probably have a sense of what they might need and what they don't need anymore. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing I think is really, I love Tolu Noah. She's amazing, but she coined a term called cauliflowering, which is not only verbing a noun, which is a favorite thing of mine, but it's the idea when you think about cauliflower and how there's been so many innovations related to cauliflower, right? We use it for rice. We use it for potatoes. We use it for pizza crust, but it used to have one purpose and that was being cauliflower. And so one of these things that we can do with faculty is we can actually invite them to take one technology and find multiple uses for it. And that it's almost like the practice of doing that inspires more innovation and more creativity. And plus it's just a cool way to say cauliflowering. So very good. For a while, see, we've been doing the podcast since 2018, and it seems like in year one and two, we asked a lot of questions about digital transformation. It was a phrase we heard often. We don't hear as much anymore, but not because it's not relevant. In fact, earlier in the podcast, you mentioned AI and chat GPT. What would you say are the elements of digital transformation? And is it mostly about new technology that is being introduced in the higher ed space and society at large, or is it about maximizing the technologies that we already have? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. Certainly digital transformation can be driven by new technology or spurred on like chat GPT, for example, or and generative AI overall is likely to create transformation in the way that we operate in higher education. So at Educause, when we talk about digital transformation, or we say DX, sometimes we say that it's a process of optimizing and transforming the institution's operations, strategic priorities, and value propositions. So those are big things, right? And we do that through deep and coordinated shifts in culture, workforce, and technology. And I'm not a tech person, even though I work for an organization that serves the higher ed IT community. Uh, but and so whether it's that bias or because it's a real thing, I really believe that the workforce and the culture aspect of digital transformation is even more important than technology. You know, so certainly there are things we can do with technology that we couldn't do by analog methods alone, but mobilizing your workforce, bringing in new skill sets, changing your culture, those are the things that are more difficult, really, even than using chat GPT and, and, you know, look, there's a technology, right? So, so I think that kind of cross-institutional collaboration, using your people resources effectively is really where the magic happens with digital transformation. Could you give us some examples of institutions that have truly embraced that concept as part of their operation? Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. That's another cool part of my job is that I get to hear about all these stories. So I have a community college example in my mind and a state university. So I'll start with the community college and they have a similar story. So you'll probably hear some themes, but in a very different kind of context. So Salt Lake Community College is the first uh, one that comes to mind, and they were very focused on data literacy and data maturity across the institution. So not just specialized staff, but across the institution. And they wanted to do things like increase the availability of trusted data. They wanted to make sure they were prioritizing their analytics projects appropriately so that they could get the biggest bang for their buck. They wanted to actually align the entire organization and how they were using data and non-data literacy, which is kind of a squishy thing. You know, when you say data literacy, what the heck does that mean? So that in itself is quite an undertaking. And they also wanted to improve their definitions of standard data and data quality. And so if you're not a data person, that really just means that you're looking at the same numbers that have the same labels and we all know that they mean the same thing. So STD means student. And the reason that we call somebody a student is because they are enrolled and they have X credits or, you know, so that's the kind of thing. So, so it sounds kind of like a technical project, right? Like there's all this data stuff, but it really was about culture. And so this at Salt Lake Community College, their secret sauce really is quite simple. And they made sure that their executive leaders and their mid-level leaders were all banging the drum of this initiative and repetition, repetition. They showed up at meetings to talk about it. They talked to each other about it. They sent out bulletins about it. And that really was the key to help the entire organization get behind this change. So, so that's that's the first one. And the second example is Arizona State University. And so if you know anything about Arizona State, they are very innovative. They are quickly growing. They do a lot of things right. And this one really focuses on the office of the university technology office. And while 
the initiative is focused in the university technology office. There were kind of organizational wide ramifications to their digital transformation project. And one of the things they did is actually a workforce strategy too. And within this UTO, they brought in a chief culture officer. And this person had experience with this kind of de-siloing and collaboration and leaning into risk and being a learning organization. So she brought the skill set to be able to kind of initiate some of these cultural changes. The other thing that they wanted to do really in kind of the practical sense is that they wanted the IT office to be seen as a strategic partner and not just the people you call when you your laptop doesn't work or you need to plug in a network or something like that. But really that IT had a strategic value at the organization. And so they ended up flattening their organization in terms of this UTO. They engaged vice provost and other leaders across the university. And part of what they did was create a cloud-focused infrastructure. And that's one of the kind of technology buzzwords, but also levers that you can pull in terms of digital transformation is to move to the cloud. And so this is where the story gets good because in doing that, they were replacing a decades old system. And so you can imagine the people who've also worked there for decades, then this is their baby and they can't imagine doing things any other way. And so there was really a lot of organizational unlearning to do, not just in moving to the cloud, but also again, with the leadership of the chief culture officer to try stuff and fail and to feel okay with, you know, having to learn something. I think sometimes we show up at work and feel like we have to be this fully formed expert on all the things. And so even just tweaking that piece of freeing up the risk and the anxiety about what if I can't do this or what if I try it and I, I'm not good at it, that really, again, that was their lever at, at ASU. So when I share these stories, I feel like it's kind of mundane. It's not super jazzy, but it is really that work of, you know, how do you get the messaging out? How do you make sure that everybody at your organization understands the change and why you're doing it? It's, you know, I wouldn't say it's basic change management. It's definitely sophisticated change management, but a lot of it is about how do you help people understand what's in it for them and how do you bring them along in a way that is engaging and safe and proactive. In those examples, where did the impetus come from Mm. to say, we're going to do things this way? Yeah. You know, I think at ASU, they had a new CIO. So they had new leadership that ran the university technology office. And so he was really inspired to make these changes and supported these changes. And I do think that in almost every single digital transformation story, at some point, a top-level leader has to be on board. It doesn't necessarily have to start there, but oftentimes it does. And the visible and ongoing presence of leadership, I think, is really critical. The two examples I gave, I think both came from a mid-level or higher executive. However, there are some examples of digital transformation that happen at the ground level. And and those might be, maybe going back to our micro-credentials conversation, it could be somebody within an individual department or school is saying, you know, we really need to jazz up our curriculum and we really need to start incorporating more technology tools. And that that gets the ball rolling. That in itself isn't digital transformation, but they might get enough momentum in doing so that they realize, oh, wait, well, we're using these new tools. What if we 
rethink the way we do assessment. And so then that starts to really start to shift things. And so you get this little bubble of transformation there, and then that creates the energy and momentum that might end up with a larger university or college initiative saying, you know, we all are going to kind of start focusing in this direction and embrace a different strategy or a different approach. As you described that, I felt a sense of guilt. Yeah. Because I have a tendency to sort faculty into different buckets. So there's one bucket that's the people who will embrace any new idea that comes along. Tiffany's doing a professional learning community on chat GPT. And we could almost predict who the people were who would sign up like that. But then we have other people. An awareness that I had was we probably need to attend the more to the people who aren't in that first bucket and walk alongside them and help them understand at their own pace where we're heading. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. In my experience working on campuses, that certainly can work. But I do think that when you have excitement among a subset of faculty, and those faculty can be the canary in a coal mine in a good way. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the other metaphor, the opposite would be, but like they can be the the prophet or the one who is off spreading the word. That can be more powerful than an administrator trying to encourage faculty to do things. And I have had a lot of, this is a little bit off the digital transformation topic, but maybe not because it's a really cool culture lever, but communities of practice where you're really turning the power over to those in the community to be the ones who are sharing what they're learning, sharing their questions, sharing their ideas with peers and colleagues. I think that that I've had great success with those and and some of those intractable, you know, the people here like, oh, they would never get on board if they hear it from their colleagues. And I often make assumptions about people who aren't in that first bucket, which are probably incorrect. Yeah, this is such an interesting thing to think about because I I do the same thing too sometimes and I feel like approaching those who may seem like they're not interested with curiosity and with like really honest curiosity, I think can actually help a lot too, because it's not you now trying to convince them that they need to change, but it's really like, how are you doing what you're doing? And maybe what they're doing is actually really successful, or maybe that there are reasons that they aren't changing that if you knew more about them, you could, you could address more effectively. So, and it's frustrating when there's a kind of a energy toward innovation or change. And and there's a group that really isn't interested. It can can be a big bummer. (laughs) And I think to the tendency to look at an institution that we view as like right on the cutting edge all the time and think, boy, wouldn't it be great to be like that? But I'm guessing for many of those places, when they implemented these changes, there were fatalities along the way that aren't accounted for necessarily. Yep. Yep. I can confirm that ASU has digital transformation worth looking into because our uh, podcast producer, Mike Jones, behind the scenes right now, just got back from visiting ASU and hearing about all the things that they're doing in the tech space, including the one that stands out to me was making some intentional decisions to give learning technology access to everyone. So when they invest in a new technology, they make sure that everybody has it to the fullest extent they can so that experimentation and innovation really can be practically possible. And I think that speaks into culture too. So it's neat to hear you refer back to them and 
And Brad, you know, this past year, I've heard from you focusing a lot on warmth strategies for creating warmth in the classroom from the beginning to get students who are less likely to attend a synchronous session or to reach out to get them to just trust you at base level so that they'll reach out in their own way on their own time. And I must say that after inviting faculty to attend this professional learning community, yes, those early adopters are the ones that have said, sign me up. But I've been proud of the trust relationships that you have built, that I've built, that Mike's built, because certain faculty who are a little bit more hesitant to be on board with this kind of technology are reaching out in different ways. They don't want to be in the professional learning community, but they want to call (laughs) or they send an email like, what are you doing with this? (laughs) So I feel like, well, maybe we just approach our faculty similarly to our students and make sure that there's a warmth and a trust in relationships somewhere at the institution where those people who are feeling resistant, hesitant, fearful, at least know who to turn to to ask (laughs) good questions, right? So, Well, and I think especially as we're increasingly hybrid as a workforce, that becomes tricky too, right? We have to have new strategies of conveying warmth that, you know, it's not taking somebody out to lunch anymore. It's, you know, how do you do that on Zoom? And and certainly there are ways, right? But it's different. We have to unlearn and relearn uh, as well. You're talking about taking people out to lunch, Kathy, and all I can envision is your new vehicle. She did yeah. steering wheel. I want you to take me out to lunch in your new vehicle. I'm going to check out. <laughs> I might not be able to reach between the seat and get a French fry, but I'm going to have fun the ride. <laughs> so too funny. This has been such a jam-packed two episodes. I think we could keep going. <laughs> we do follow Educause. I can say with honesty that Brad and I do, but it makes me want to be more disciplined in following the work that you and your colleagues do and just grateful for it. Honestly, do some of the hard work of finding these best practices and these examples that we can all look to for inspiration. Great. Well, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's been great fun talking to you too. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go on eBay and see if I can find a used bagpipe just for fun. (laughs) Right. Because nobody will ever know if I'm playing it badly or poorly. I mean, I will know, Brad. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) I won't play in front of you then. (laughs) Thanks, Kathy, for being with us. It's been great. Talk to you later. And to all of our listeners, we'll be back next week with a new episode and new guests on the Digital to Learn podcast. If you get a chance, please like this set of two episodes, the series with Kathy. Feel free to reach out to Kathy, look into Educause, and follow some of the links associated with the show. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.